You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Well, hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast again, and I am glad to be joined with David Harkoff once again. Dave, you were you were out for a while, and then you're like, man, I'm back. And then last week, again, I had to sadly disappoint our audience and say, Dave is out again. And uh, you don't know how many emails and uh, weepy emojis I received this last week. So thank you One for making people stay. I don't think any of them were for my wife. She was telling me on the way back, uh, we, we were gone over the weekend, and she was telling me how you keep me on track during these interviews. And uh, she was like, yeah, you. he really keeps you on track, David. So I don't know what I'm exactly providing for you, um, but I really enjoy, enjoy chatting with all of these guests and especially um, uh, getting to chat with Jay Kim today. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, so Jay, well, you talk about him because – you're the guy that uh, that really connected with his writing first and then actually introduced some of your college students to him. Yeah, so I read Jay's book. Um, he, he, he wrote kind of two. He wrote Analog Church first, and then he, he's written a book called Analog Christian. It just came out over the summer, and I was reading it, and I, it, cultivating uh, resilience, uh, wisdom, contentment in the digital age, and talks pretty plainly about technology, but not from a like a doomsday perspective, very clear, very hopeful, um, some great stories in the book. And I came away thinking, man, I need to share this with my college success class. I team teach college success where I work here. And just to, for, for students that are especially digitally native, they've never known a world where technology is not pressed in on them so hard. Uh, Jay's writing is, is uh, deep, but very accessible. He's a good writer and uh, draws from a lot of good sources. You can tell he's, he's well-read and a brilliant guy, but also just very accessible. I think our audience is going to love this conversation. So last week I talked about this in my introduction uh, to Jim Doman podcast with him. Uh, I said, you know, I was reading a book by Mark Batterson and he talks about the importance of making decisions against yourself. And as a Christian, I think that every Christian should do that. We should have areas of our life where we're making decisions against ourselves. You know, I think Bill Urey talked about, you know, his parents didn't drink coffee for a while just because they were making a decision against themselves. They didn't want to be addicted to that. Um, you know, this, these weeks, my wife and I are doing this detox fast, right? And kind of making a decision against ourselves. And it's been super rewarding and fruitful. And so with social media, same thing, same thing. Like there are decisions that you should make against your natural impulses that um, lead to a more joy-filled life in Christ. And yeah, so for, for me as a not a digital native, and as you know, a bit of a technophobe, um, I have found myself, I remember when I got Facebook the first time, I, I put it off for so long, but I was like, oh, I want to interact with students and I want to, but the truth is, too much confession from from me here like too much of my time or too much of the time when i use these devices it's for scrolling it's for escaping it's for things that are not healthy and so i what i like about you know what with jay saying and others you know doing something that maybe is not comfortable well i need my phone for my alarm so he's he's you know get get an alarm in your room and put your phone in the other room right doing things that are uncomfortable in the moment that yield great fruit in our lives. And uh, to your point about whether it's fasting or anything else, there, there is, uh, I can't remember who it, the, the writer that said that human hearts tend to be an idol factory. Maybe that was John Calvin. 
Mm. Um, I quoted Calvin, not Calvin and Hobbes. But like just the the propensity to make something that could be used for good into something that actually damages us and the, the need to bring our bodies into subjection, to bring our thoughts and our minds. Uh, and that's not a, that's not a angry constraining thing. That's actually a, a path to freedom. I was reading a tweet earlier and they said they love, or, you know, but for better phrase, uh, they can't stand podcast. <laughs> they, they give a 10 minute introduction and finally get around to having their guests. So we're approaching four minutes. So um, on the plane. I know we need to get to our conversation here with Jay Kim. And uh, let's do that right now. Well, today on the podcast, we have author Jay Kim, pastor as well, lead pastor of uh, teaching at Westgate Church in Silicon Valley, teacher in residence at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California, where my wife and I were just a few months ago, I guess, for the first time. Beautiful area. Beautiful area. Uh, he's on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project and co-hosts the Regeneration Podcast, he, and uh, lives in the Silicon Valley with his wife and two children. So, Jay, Kim, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, you guys. Well, we were just talking off air that David, he's wanted to bring you on for a while. So when I said, I'm finally bringing you on, he was very excited. So, <laughs> Dave, I know you're you're excited for this podcast. Yeah, I told Ez uh, backstage, I'll try not to fanboy too much or hijack the conversation, <laughs> asking all of the questions I want to ask. Um, but Jay, thanks for your writing, uh, your influence, uh, your your Twitter feed is always filled with, uh, I sent Ez something a couple months ago that you had there about, uh, I think it was intentional and non-intentional formation. Yeah, as, mm. as you are, he, he oh, should wow. be in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just uh, thank you for your voice and... Um, and, and for your writing this book, it's it's been an influence for me personally. Mm, thank you guys so much. It's really kind. Yeah, really kind and um, grateful to be chatting with you both. Jay, for those unfamiliar with you or your work, let's back up. How did you first come to faith in Christ? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. My mother still to this day is one of the most passionate followers of Jesus that I know. So I, you know, grew up in the pews. I, uh, I, went to an ethnic church, a Korean American church, and sort of um, in the ethnic church, uh, church is not just an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. It really becomes the um, social hub of your communal life. So I was at church all the time, thought I was a Christian, and then went to college and um, went through what is now sadly a fairly common sort of deconstruction of faith uh, season of my life for a few years. And then There were a group of guys, young men who were um, a few years older than me, uh, who just kind of never gave up on me, Um, went to the church where I grew up. Uh, They started in my early 20s. They started inviting me to a Monday night um, hangout. They they sort of they just said, we're going to eat pizza and uh, watch Monday night football and play video games. But really what ended up happening was we'd hang out for several hours and then it would the conversation would just flow into a conversation about life and faith and. Uh, they invited all of my questions. It was the first time in my life where I felt like I could bring my doubts and my tension and um, and it was welcomed and invited. So anyways, long story short, that journey led to that group really essentially becoming a Bible study. And in my early 20s, I think I encountered the risen Christ truly for the first time in my life, started uh, volunteering in, in the youth group, and uh, and then the rest is history. So yeah, there you go. 
Was there something about those conversations that made it click with you? Yeah. Um, it was their, uh, not just their acceptance, but really their excitement about the journey that I was on. And um, it never felt like uh, they, they needed me to adhere to a set of beliefs in order to belong. They, they just welcomed me with open arms and yet had a very uncompromising, unwavering sort of conviction that, um, you know, as Jesus puts it in John 10, 10, you know, that Jesus offers us life and life to the full. And that if I wanted to experience that sort of life, it could only be found in Christ. So they were unwavering and uncompromising in terms of for them, you know, essentially their telos, kind of their end goal, the purpose of their life. And so they embodied for me, um, they didn't, they didn't, try to indoctrinate me. They just embodied this incredible gift that is the life that Christ has for us. And, uh, and that's what stands out. You know, they weren't banging uh, the Bible over my head. They were essentially just embodying biblical truth and their life became something that um, became very attractive to me. Uh, and that really was the path. You know, when I was asking the question, how do you have this sort of life, this sort of joy, this sort of peace, you know, the answer became clear. It's Jesus. And uh, so that still stands out. I mean, that was, you know, 20 years ago, but um, yeah, it was transformative. It's interesting that belonging sense, Dave, there, right? Like the belonging before, you know, I think a lot of times churches, we get that backwards where we say, you know, hey, come to us and learn all the right stuff and then you can belong. But uh, mm. kind of went the other way around. Mm. I think the motives are oftentimes really good. Um, we want people to experience risen life in Christ, right? Yeah. And, but also in, in these cultural moments, I don't, I don't know. I'd be interested in your perspective on this, Jay, just evangelism or whatever that box is going yeah. to the nations with the gospel. It seems like it looks a lot different than it did 20, 30, 40 years ago, because I mean, kind of hitting somebody with the Bible seemed to be like, a decently effective method that was used quite a bit. I don't, I don't know how, yeah. how, how, in your perception, how have things changed in the last few years? And maybe just as a follow-up to that, what was your motivation for writing this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a couple of thoughts. One, I actually think my experience with uh, this group of guys, um, what they emphasized in my experience with them 20 years ago uh, I am not certain that that would be as effective today. And what I mean by that, and, and maybe not globally, but at least at least here in, um, you know, the sort of modern West, um, I just think culturally we're in a different time. Uh, I, I actually think, you know, that's why I was careful to say that these guys were, yes, I was able to belong in a sort of uh, communal way. Um, but, but I think it's important for me to say there was also clarity that like the deepest, the deepest sort of belonging, belonging to the family of God, there's a threshold you have to cross. And they were pretty clear yeah. about that, not in a sort of pushing, like not a, you're an outsider sort of way, yeah. but in, in an invitational way, you know, and that's why I mentioned that they were, yes, they welcomed me with open arms and loved me and cared for me. Um, but they were unwavering and uncompromising in uh, painting the picture, you know, like the deepest sort of belonging where you can experience the fullest life 
happens when you cross that threshold, when you experience and receive, you know, the gift of life that, that Christ offers us. And there is a way to do that uh, with love and kindness and gentleness for sure. Um, but especially today in the sort of, you know, as the whole, as individualism and autonomy has sort of gone off the rails and, you know, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth sort of thing. I actually think the most loving thing we can be to an unbelieving world, one of the most loving things we can be is clear. You know, yes. I, I think that there was a whole season and I understand it, you know, um, the sort of seeker sensitive movement of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, I just my opinion, I just think that heyday is long gone you know, um, translating the gospel in a way that is unoffensive and totally palatable for anybody. I'm not sure that that's effective anymore. I actually think we have to be like unabashedly clear about what the gospel of Jesus is while doing that with incredible gentleness and love and care. Um, so anyways, all that to say, connecting it to the book, you, you asked me, you know, why did I write the book? One of the reasons I wrote the book, primarily I wrote the book as a prayer for myself. Primarily, I just wrote it as a sort of commitment to God. You know, the digital age is undoing so much in us. And God, I want you by your spirit to form me, reform and transform me into the sort of person that you've called me to be. And that really deep down inside, intrinsically, I long to be. You know, so that's primarily why I wrote the book. But another reason why I wrote the book is sort of what we're talking about here. I wanted to give um, people and specifically Christians, followers of Jesus, some language around the tensions we feel in our cultural moment and then practical tools based on what Paul says to us in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the spirit um, that can help us navigate uh, the complexities and the tensions that we face um, uniquely today in, in the digital age. So uh, I was fascinated by, I think it was in the chapter. Um, I love how you set the chapters up, by the way, but the, the gentleness versus outrage, you sort of relate a story in there um, about someone who um, heard about or read your church's stance, stances on, on sexuality mm -hmm. and were yeah. sort of upset by them. And you have this conversation. I think that that illustration from your own life sort of underscores some of this, like we need to be gentle. We need to w be winsome. And yet we have this, there's a clarity that has to be here. And yeah. it's not always going to get you like likes on social media, whereas sort of ambiguous religious sounding platitudes like you mm -hmm. know if everyone likes you there might be a problem so maybe just talk to us a little bit about in the spirit how do we navigate the clear i love you enough to tell you the truth but also the gentle side of this because i i feel like the ditches are so easy to get into and yeah. yet christ calls us to something else maybe maybe talk about that a bit and, and share that story too yeah yeah, yeah Sure. Yeah. So in, in short, the story is I, when I was on staff um, at Vintage Faith Church, uh, we had a coffee shop, still have a coffee shop um, that is a ministry of the church, but it's a seven days a week, open seven days a week, open to the public. The coffee shop was open. It was actually right adjacent to our sanctuary, but the coffee shop was open during Sunday worship gatherings and it was just open all the time. So 
and the um the church and coffee shop we were about a we're about a mile and a half down the road from uc santa cruz which is uh the big state university in santa cruz and it is um one of the most uh secular progressive liberal universities in the country and um so we would have folks who were far from jesus maybe even antagonistic toward religion and christianity who loved our coffee shop they would study there and hang out there and and we loved that um anyways long story short uh, a young woman who was a part of the lgbtqia coalition student coalition at the university um she somehow found out that about our our theological position on human sexuality um uh, essentially that, that our position was that sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage and marriage, it, biblically speaking, is uh, a monogamous loving relationship between one man, one woman. And she, you know, obviously because of her position, she was angered. And I understand why, uh, because of the positional differences. So she um, essentially, you know, took it upon herself to close our coffee shop. So she began all, essentially a campaign, you know, a defamation campaign to say this coffee shop and this church that's attached to the coffee shop, they're bigots, they're hateful, uh, and we need to close them down. So she started sending some emails in. I replied back. Initially, I was angered and upset. I felt really misunderstood and caricaturized, but, you know, took a deep breath, prayed, sent her as kind of an email as I could and essentially said, would you be willing to meet over? I would love to buy you a cup of coffee, you know, in our coffee shop. You don't have to buy it because you don't want to support our coffee shop. Totally understand. I'll buy the coffee. Can we meet? And thankfully, you know, to her credit, she said yes. And essentially the story is that we didn't come to a, an agreement theologically, um, but we came to an understanding that um, I saw her as a human being and that uh, my primary posture toward her was a posture of love. Um, and, I, and I told her so, you know, like as a follower of Jesus, what I believe about you is that you were created in the image of God and that there is intrinsic dignity and uh, goodness in you. Um, yes. Even if you disagree. And so I love you. I just want you to know I love you. And I think that it is possible uh, for us to disagree and still be kind and gentle. And for me, at least, to be loving toward you. And this is my this is my best sort of expression of that. And um, we laughed during that conversation and we connected about personal things and our personal lives and shared our stories. And we walked away still. Uh, on on different sides of the sort of theological conversation, uh, but we walked away with a mutual respect and admiration and having exchanged kindness and compassion and gentleness and even having achieved, I think, some semblance of understanding. And she ended up, you know, shutting down her campaign to shut down our coffee shop. And it doesn't always go that way, but I shared that story in the yeah. book because um, I wanted to illustrate the, the possibility. The possibility that in the digital age and particularly on social media, and this is a longer conversation, but the way social media is designed, there's a there's a non-neutral sort of inherent design mechanism within social media that amplifies division. And it's actually great only for the bottom line of the social media company. Yeah. It damages us as humans and human societies. And the only winner is the company that makes lots of money because of advertising and such, because we can't, we're addicted and we can't stop screaming and shouting at each other. And the point I was trying to make is, listen, if you can get off of that screen and begin to have important discussions 
in analog ways over a cup of coffee um, off of the platforms that sort of, you know, dictate the terms of your engagement and instead just be human with one another. It is possible that you can disagree and still love each other, you know, and uh, and I just I think we need that so much um, today in my own life. I, I know that I need that so much today. It's something I've thought a lot about the last year or so, especially, you know, Dave yeah. and I have talked about this with, you know, you have different people that you interact, you know, on social media, right? It's such an easy and you kind of sense sometimes if someone comes at you and kind of yep. attacks you right in your position, if it's coming from, as you say, a place of hate or a place of hurt. And I'd like mm -hmm. you to distinguish between the two. And you talk about your last book, Analog Christian, right? You write that, put it online, and then all of a sudden, you know, most of it's all positive, but then you get one response kind of negative and you dealt with it in, I think, pretty cool way. So you want to share that story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago. These two books are sort of, they go together in some ways. The first book, Analog Church, was a book primarily written to church leaders and pastors. This new book, Analog Christian, is for everybody. But yeah, I tell a story in Analog Christian about, um, you know, after I, I published Analog Church, you know, when you publish a public work, and you guys know this with a public podcast, you know, uh, most people are quite encouraging, um, but you're always going to get the <laughs> the critics. And that's perfectly fair. It's totally yeah. okay. You know, I'm, I'm never, you know, I'm not under some grand illusion that everything I write is is great or, or even right. You know, I, I well, and we great. always send them to Dave at the Monday Christian.com. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Go talk to Dave. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I write the book, I receive some criticism, but one critique in particular from somebody online, um, the review was just really scathing, which again, I don't mind, but it was scathing in a, in what felt like a very personal way. Um, like it was a, it was an attack on me and my character and sort of, you know, and, and it was making some, some uh, assumptions about me that just weren't true. So <laughs> initially I got really angry and, uh, and then again, prayed took a deep breath and um, usually with critique, I'll just leave it alone. It's like, yeah, fair enough. And, you know, but because, because I felt uh, so personal about it, like for my own soul, I felt like, man, I got to reach out and again, extend kindness and generosity, even if they don't respond, just thank them for the critique, maybe try to achieve a little bit of clarity. Like, Hey, that's not exactly what I meant by X, Y, and Z. I think you have some fair points here. And so I sent that email and surprisingly uh, the person emailed back and then we got into um, a pretty extended exchange and um, uh, it might not have been email. It might've been direct message on social media. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but we got into a long exchange and long story short, um, Essentially, you need some detail to understand what's happening here. So in Analog Church, I, um, I critique uh, online church. Um, not that it's all bad. I just have some, some criticisms. And, and, and really, uh, I was just trying to point people to thinking more deeply about what's happening when we think about church primarily as an online sort of exchange. And his critique back was essentially that... Um, it was a shallow rendering of online church and that real community and genuine connection can happen online. So when I wrote back, what I realized in our exchange, he began sharing a little bit of his story. He's a church leader, a pastor who uh, um, for a variety of reasons, 
uh, his um, church has a large population of shut-ins and those who physically it would be unsafe for them to go to. And this is before COVID even. And so online had become a lifeline to his congregation who couldn't show up. And he was exhausted by all of the, all of the chatter online about how online falls short. And he was really broken by it because here is a, a man who is just trying to serve and love and shepherd the community God has called them to. And he's leveraging technology to, to do that, to not just let those who couldn't physically show up fall by the wayside and feel ostracized and marginalized. And he was doing fantastic gospel work, you know, in ways that he needed to. And he was really hurt by what I said. And it wasn't just me. He was hurt by all sorts of other voices saying similar things. So what I realized is what I initially heard as hatred was not hatred it's hurt it's pain and that got me thinking you know i think that that's it's not true all the time but it's true a lot of the time you know what what initially feels like oh this person hates me or this person hates my idea this person's angry or outraged about x y and z when we can do the work of taking a deep breath prayerfully asking the spirit of god to cultivate the fruit of his spirit in us you know things like gentleness and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and extend those things to others. Um, I think it can do the work of excavating deeper into the soul, into the heart and, uh, and revealing to us that uh, maybe there's hurt there and that what God's calling us to do is not amplify the hate, um, but bring healing and a sort of balm, you know, to the hurt. So. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a key difference there between because it's so easy to um misinterpret one over the other yeah. you know we we think someone like you said is coming at us and it, i i'm the same way my natural response is okay you shoot me <laughs> all right you know guns are a blazing coming back right yeah and then you yep. type out that email and then you think oh, I, I don't know how many emails i've typed out <laughs> and then deleted yeah. them right <laughs> right Right. And then you, exactly. you realize, oh, this actually isn't as helpful as, as maybe I thought it would be. Um, yeah. Dave, any thoughts you have? Yeah, more a, another question for Jay. We we have a lot of folks in our audience that are digitally native. You know, like they've only known, and and to be fair, I know a lot of like fifty somethings that like blow so much time on Facebook. Okay, so yeah. like it's always it's always <laughs> seems like the discussion is like these kids today. Um, but I appreciated the sort of opportunity for growth mindset in your in your writing rather than just all negative although you were pretty honest about some of the you know it's it's uh it's a non-neutral setup right so yep. if you're if you were talking specifically to that portion of our audience that's digitally native what are some tips tools thoughts about um using technology without having without having it control us yeah. um practically speaking what does that look like for you yeah it's a great question. Um, you know, I think the first thing, big picture, overarching thing I would say is uh, your your phone, your smartphone or um, your laptop or your tablet. Whenever you go online um, and in particular social media, but broader than that, just online digital life, uh, it's a different type. Of, it, it is a tool, but it is a it's a different type of tool than, say, a hammer or a car because of its pervasiveness and its ubiquity. 
So you think about a hammer. When's the last time you picked up a hammer? You know, it's it's like unless you're a carpenter or something, um, you 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 have a very clear usage of the tool, and you only go to it when you need it. Um, even a car, you know, we spend a lot more. Most of us spend a lot more time driving our cars than we do using a hammer. But even still, you don't go to your car without intentionality. So the tool itself, a hammer or a car or a microwave or anything, any any most tools have built into them an inherent usage that's very clear. So the intentionality is very clearly and obviously built into the design of the tool. The danger of digital technologies in the in the digital age and in the Internet age is that um, they, by design, are not designed that way. So you think about an iPhone, right? Um, for example, you know, uh, as we're recording this, Apple just had a big sort of reveal uh, recently about the iPhone 14. Now, if you go on YouTube and you watch the video, the full presentation, what you will notice about the presentation is that though it is an iPhone, there is literally nothing said about it being a phone. It's about everything else. It's about the camera. It's about how the interface now has this little thing on top where you can have all your different apps open and see them and click. It's about um, how it can essentially make your life easier and make all of your life easier in any number of ways. And to me, that's fascinating. First of all, this is not a knock on Apple. It's not a knock on any particular company. I'm just trying to paint a picture of why intention human intentionality matters so much when it comes to digital devices. It's because digital tools are designed to blur the line between what they are inherently and what they are supposed to be in your actual life. So again, an iPhone technically is supposed to be a phone, but most people listening to this would say, but I don't really use it as a phone. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody, it's yeah. actually a computer that connects you to, to the sort of global, you know, online world in ways that we think are um, of our own choosing. You know, that's the power of the tool. It's like, man, this thing can do more than I can possibly imagine. It makes my life easier. It adds value in all of these different ways. And again, that's not necessarily inherently bad, except if we do not insert intentionality into our usage of digital tools, the tools will assert intentionality for us, meaning it will shape the intention of our life. So again, with a hammer or a car, intentionality is in inherently built into the tool. You only go to it when you have a particular intention. I'm going to travel from point A to point B, so I use the tool that is my car. I'm going to put this nail into the wall so that I can hang a picture, so I use the tool of the hammer. It's not like that with digital devices. You, this is why most people listening can relate to that weird thing that happens to us when we're in any moment of boredom whether it's in line at the grocery store or the DMV or at the Starbucks, what do, what do most of us do? If, if we go more than five seconds just staring off into the ether, we reach into our back pockets, we pull out the phone, and then boom, there we are. Well, that is the device intending something, imposing an intention on you 
because you are not being intentional with the tool. Hammers don't do that. Cars don't do that. You don't sit around and think like, oh, you know, I'm pretty bored. I'm going to go kind of twirl the hammer around, I guess. No, <laughs> you don't do that, right? Yeah. Uh, because again, the intentionality is really built into the design. Whereas with the, with the phone, the, the smartphone or, you know, our laptops or whatever, if it's open, it's just open and it's on and it's constantly sort of buzzing at our beck and call. So, so we need with digital devices, we need to be intentional, you know, and, and that's maybe the crux of, of uh, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to share with the world. Well, and Jay, I mean, you're up on this more than I am, I'm sure, but isn't the trend that we're seeing over the next 10 years only going to expedite this, you know, maybe even double, you know, like, like we think the last 20 years have been crazy. For me, what I envision over the next decade with the metaverse, right, and, and how, yeah. you, know, you know, just kids in the street, right, wearing their Oculus and how that you're trying to blur the lines even more and more and more. Uh, to where it's just seamless. You don't even think about the internet. You just walk in a room and and this yeah. is, you know, you don't even think about Alexa. It's just everything is so integrated. And uh, I've got all kinds of thoughts on that, on where that could lead. But, you know, as we seem to be continually progressing this way, are you saying we just need to put some hard guidelines in place and, uh, you know, in your words, I think in your book somewhere, become Amish? <laughs> well, yeah. What, what's the the... Um, what do we got to do to guard, guard against that, I guess? Yeah, yeah. That's sort of a misunderstanding sometimes people have about me that I'm a Luddite and I'm asking everyone to live on a farm, you know, and raise cattle or something. Um, yeah, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I think that there are ways in which we can, again, if we can live with real consistent intentionality when it comes to our digital devices, there are ways in which we can leverage them redemptively and helpfully, you know, for our good, for the common good, for God's glory even. Um, but it, it requires and demands intentionality. So uh, practically a part of what that means is it requires us to see these tools for what they are and to put them in their right place. And I think that comes down to like the nuts and bolts of our lives. You know, um, what sort of apps do you have on your phone? Why do you have them? Are they necessary? Um, what, what purpose do they serve? You know, uh, when do you put your phone away? When do you wake it up in the morning? Is it constantly by your side? Is it always on, uh, a couple of examples just from my own life. Um, some of these I borrowed from friends, you know, one is, um, Andy Crouch has this fantastic sort of recommendation in his book, The TechWise Family. He says we should treat our smartphones the way we treat young children, meaning they should go to bed before we do and they should wake up after we do. So essentially, like in our home, we don't put our phones in our bedrooms, my wife and I. They don't sit on our nightstand because I don't want that to be the last thing I see when I go to bed. I don't want it to be the first thing I hold on to and, and log on to when I wake up. So they dock in our kitchen, you know, and we plug them in. Um, and it's really intentional because even like during meals or whatever, you know, our phones are in the kitchen. They're never at the dining table. Um, I've deleted social media from my phone. You know, I have Instagram on my phone, but Twitter, Facebook, all those things. And in fact, my, my desire is actually just to, to delete my accounts on all of those social media devices altogether. But um, doing public work, writing books, mm -hmm. and stuff, you know, publishers sort of demand that you have it. So 
Um, but I don't exchange, I don't really engage much on social media. I'll post things from time to time, but I won't engage a whole lot. Um, so I've deleted, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all those things from my, from my phone. Um, yeah. So it's little things like that, you know, can, can we be more intentional about what these devices are and then essentially, um, take from them the sort of stranglehold and power they have over our lives. What's, comes, the, what's Twitter? Go ahead, Dave. No, I was just going to ask you, what's the positive um, outflow of that been in your own life personally? What are some of the things that you would say sort of directly connect to some of the management tools you've put in place? Yeah, I'm less distracted. You know, I'm way less distracted. Another thing I do is I have no, um, I have no alerts on my phone. So if somebody, you know, like text messages me or comments on social media or anything like that, or, or the warriors won the game or whatever. Like I don't get any alerts on my phone. So my phone, most of the day just sits as a black screen at my desk at work. And the only time I'm going to see a text message if, is if I intentionally open my text messages. Um, so I have no email alerts, nothing like that. Um, so I'm, I'm way less distracted uh, the writer Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, he talks about, uh, he has a phrase, um, frenetic shallowness. And he talks about how if we are living lives um, that are constantly distracted, we, we lose our ability and our aptitude for doing deep work because we are living in a state of frenetic shallowness. That's good. And what he means is most of our digital interactions, social media in particular, but also things like email and text messages, for the most part, they're shallow exchanges, right? It's not long format reading. You're not sitting down to like thoughtfully engage a tweet, right? You're just kind of scrolling quickly, reading and getting sound bites and all of that. And um, the more we acclimate ourselves to that pace of mental life, uh, we actually, in, in neuroscience is even showing this, like our neurons even begin rewiring and we lose our aptitude for doing deep work, which typically takes patience and slowness and depth and all those sorts of things. So as I've made subtle changes in my life and in my digital engagement, yeah, I have, I have found myself increasing and regaining the ability and the aptitude to do deep work and to sit patiently for a long time with a particular set of ideas or thoughts. And uh, yeah, and, and I would say it's, it's an absolute game changer, you know, to re-engage deeply uh, with life. How do you engage with your different platforms? I was in specifically social media. Um, which ones do you use the most? I, I was just thinking about this as you were talking. I, I think Twitter for me, if you know Dan Kimball, and I think in your introduction talks about Philippians four eight. We had uh, Tommy Newberry on the podcast a few weeks ago talk specifically on that subject, mm. and I was just I've been thinking about that every time I go to tweet. It's really hard to tweet something without like violating that because mm. sarcasm always comes to mind on Twitter. Yeah. Just sarcasm yeah. is the default, it feels like, on there. And it, I just don't really know what to do with it. So I haven't, <laughs> haven't tweeted much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I find it helpful for sometimes news or kind of seeing what's going on in culture. Like Instagram, I think that's cool because there's more story-based. You kind of like – you have pictures. I, yeah. I love the story aspect of it. Yeah. Facebook, I love it because you can ask questions, interact with people, um, you know, that you're in high school, that kind of thing. So right. 
I see the pros and cons of some of that. How do you use these different platforms um, so that they work for you as a tool and not that they're using you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll share how I use them, but it's not, I, I want to make sure it's like, this is not monolithic. I, I'm not saying this is what everybody should do. For me, I try my best um, not to scroll at all. <laughs> I try to get in and get out. Uh, so I try to get in and I only go in when I have something I'm going to share. And honestly, my feeds are not great uh because a lot of it is like you know it's kind of connected to my publisher and different things like hey we did this thing share the work hopefully people see it and if they find it helpful great so i really just i get in i post what i'm gonna post and then i get out i typically not always but i typically don't read comments and and replies and um, I just kind of share the stuff I'm going to share. And and there you go. Twitter, it's mostly some of my public work. Instagram, I don't share anything about my family. Um, I don't post pictures of my children. Sometimes I'll post something on a story, but I'll, I'll never post something about my kids or my wife, nothing like that. Um, on Instagram, it's a lot of, yeah, it's some of my public work, but it's a lot of stuff about our church because a lot of folks in our church I engage, you know, they engage with me on Instagram. So it's a very localized sort of expression for me. Um, Facebook, I'm, I'm almost never on it. I, I, um, and it's mostly just to share, you know, things I'm working yeah. on or yeah. invite, invite our folks to different things. So, cause Dave, we've talked about this a little bit, like you, you know, in our culture, right. You want to engage people and some people, it you know they feel very comfortable to like type up this long email or like you know direct message or something like that right and send it off and then you meet them in person and they're like you know very stoic <laughs> and <laughs> like wait wait what happened to you you're like two yeah. totally different people and so it feels like in some sense you leverage these tools to go to people's worlds but then there's like a slippery slope so dave i'm curious your thoughts but you know, as as you're yeah, listening it's interesting. To i'm all here. yeah this the uh, it, to me, it just underscores the importance of embodied real relationships as great as um, even chatting here in this format is with Jay, us hanging out at a coffee shop or, you know, over a pizza, watching a game and chatting about this. There, there's just something that's that we miss. And my yeah. concern is always that something that is helpful for certain situations, the, the situation that Jay mentioned about where these people can't come to church, like, of course, let's leverage every little bit of this. But when this starts replacing better things, um, and of course, I'm not trying to be monolithic either, because I, I am a bit of a technophobe, as as knows, he taught me how to plug everything in here. But I, I do think <laughs> that <laughs> some of your suggestions, even just like, you know, why, why am I scrolling? What's yeah. the purpose behind this? Um, yep. I think those are important questions to be asking ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Biggest, a big takeaway that you'd want for people that read the book. Um, what's, what's the big thing that you want to leave them with? Yeah. I, I think the big takeaway is a more fruitful life is possible and it's within reach and it's probably closer than you think, you know, but it will not happen by itself. It won't happen unless you are intentional about um, detaching and untethering from some things and reattaching and, and tethering yourself to other things. But, but if you can do that work, um, 
it's like you know you don't know how good it is until you have it it's interesting i've talked to so many people who go on uh digital fasts you know and they'll um get rid of social media or for lent they'll fast from social media or or whatever and a hundred percent of them what they say is that was so good mm. <laughs> like that was so much better yes. than you know and, yeah. and then it's really surprising to me how many folks just kind of revert back eventually um, but my wife, as an example, she deleted all of her social media a few years ago and has never gone back and says to me all the time, she has no desire to go back. She's just so much happier. Uh, and the little it's the really little, crazy. Yeah. The little that she she lost is like, oh, yeah, I don't know what my friend from college is doing for work now. It's like it's so minimal to what you gain, you know, and. Um, so that's what I would say. It is possible. The more fruitful life is possible. It's within grasp. It's going to take intentionality and, and, and work and effort for sure. Uh, but once you taste it, I think, you know, you'll know how good it is. Best place for people to connect with you and send you lots of DMS and uh, <laughs> probably snail mail probably semaphore yeah flags or yeah something. probably like uh you know a carrier pigeon write me a letter on a piece of paper and <laughs> I had the guy that did the eugene peterson biography recently i forget his name again but that was i went to contact him and he said honestly you'll probably receive a response from me quicker if you send me a letter so i thought yeah <laughs> when collier yeah totally yeah, when collier, that's it yeah yeah that's awesome um yeah, yeah. The best place, you know, this is like kind of ironic. We're talking about analog. But yeah, I have a little website, um, jkimthinks.com. And, uh, you know, some of my work is there. And that's also, you know, if someone, again, I'm not great on social media, but if someone wants to find me on social media, it's just jkimthinks at Instagram and, and Facebook and, and uh, Twitter. So they can leave you a comment, but not expect a response for. Yeah, probably, probably not. <laughs> Don't expect a yeah. response. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Well, I enjoyed that conversation with Jay. Um, I mean, Dave, I know you did as well. Super practical, super helpful, and a lot of things that you can just, I think, easily put into practice throughout the day. I mean, delete social media off your phone. It's interesting that when we asked him, he said, hey, these aren't monolithic expressions like everyone should do what I do. And yet I think it would I think with a lot of these things, it's good to experiment. If you if you feel like, hey, um, this app, this social media platform has a stranglehold on my life. Um, if you feel that frenetic shallowness, that was an amazing phrase. Frenetic, you got to constantly be doing something and none of it's very deep. It keeps you from deep conversations with people and with the Lord and from better things. I would say just try it. Try plugging your phone in in the kitchen or in another room and using an alarm clock. Um, put your phone to bed at 7 p.m. Um, do something small and see how it changes you over time. Um, yeah. 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 Just practical, man. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. I mean, I've tried to put big things into practice in my life, and they just seldom work. They work for a couple of weeks, and then I'm back to my same old routines. But um, small things. I mean, I think we had Craig Dennison on the podcast months and months ago, maybe even a year ago, and he talked about just the importance of you know putting some strategic habits in in your life in regard to social media, and that changed something right away, and and that's shifted my habits. I mean, I, I remember several years ago, I didn't think journaling was a big deal. I mean, slightly different topic, but 
And I just decided, okay, I'm going to journal. I can do this, right? And I had always failed at journaling, right? Always failed at it. But then I decided, you know what? I'm going to do it. And man, it worked. Like, and I got this notification 800 days in a row. It's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's taught me over, over time. Sometimes they say, oh, I can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? But you can establish habits in your life. And if you can't, I think there's a book out there called Atomic Habits or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a value and it's not, it's not disconnected. Mm. It's, you don't have this spiritual life and then this physical life. Those things are so connected. And I, yes. I think Jay's writing and some of these practical small things could have a huge impact on the lives that we that we live in real time for the next 20 or 30 years. This is Jay's Jay's writing I would say is almost prophetic for our culture. It's it's desperately needed and I, not just like other people um as I I would say I'm a pretty disciplined person but I needed this conversation today to remind me um hey what about some of those commitments are those still good? Uh do you like the fruit that they produce? Then you have to you have to keep them. You need some accountability there. Uh, so Spoiler yep. alert, I might be talking to you off air a bit here. So, yeah, man. Good stuff. Analog Christian. Good good uh, read this week. And uh, next week, David Lamb's on the podcast. So, until then, I'll talk to you all again later. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.